The first question is, um, on a deeper level, thinking of Arunachala means self-attentiveness. However, did Bhagavan specifically talk about the power of just the thought of Arunachala? Would thinking about the external form of Arunachala from anywhere in the world equally be equally helpful for the aspirant? Uh, yes, certainly. I mean, Bhagavan, <clears throat> that is many of the verses of Aksharmalai can be understood on two levels. We can understand it from the perspective of Anya Baba, where we take our nature to be something other than ourselves. And also from the perspective of Ananya Baba, when we recognize that he is I, he is what is shining in our heart as I. Both levels of meaning are implicit in so many verses, and sometimes they're very explicit. For example, there is a, a verse that Bhagavan once wrote under a, a, a picture of Arunachala. Karuna Navamai Karudakati Nal Harunachala Shiva Midam. That means this is Arunachala Shiva. He's, he wrote this under a picture of Arunachala, so he's talking particularly about the form of the hill. This is Arunachala Shiva. Uh, which Karuna uh, Navamai, being the ocean of grace, Karudak uh, Gatinal, um, Karudak, when when thought of, Gatinalhu uh, uh, bestows liberation when thought of. So this is Arunachala, which being the ocean of grace bestows liberation when thought of. So Bhagavan is clearly clearly referring there to the outward form of the hill. And he, <clears throat> there are so many verses where he's both referring to the hill and, I mean, he's, he's referring, he's deliberately referring to it at two levels. We can interpret it at two levels, but we can't deny either level. We can't deny the, um, but in these verses, he's talking about the external form. We can't deny that he's also talking about the internal form, the true form of Arunachala, the Swarupa of Arunachala. So both meanings are applicable. By thinking of the external form of Arunachala, that will that that external form of Arunachala has the power to draw our mind within. So um, how this works, as Bhagavan says, it cannot be understood. Bhagavan says, begins Arunachala Ashtakam by saying, Arivaru Giriyena Amadarum. It stands as, a, um, as an insentient hill. When he says it stands as an insentient hill, he implies it stands as if an insentient hill. Obviously, Arunachala is not in sentient hill, but it, in our view, it seems to be just a, a hill of rock. It seems to be just uh, an insentient hill. Amma adi sayan idin sail aribari darkum. Amma means mother, but in this context, it's an exclamation of wonder. Amma. It's a uh, ah. It's 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 action, meaning it's the action of its grace is 
is adiseyan. It is it is wonderful, preeminent. Aribari uh, darkum. It is uh, it is very rare or very difficult for anyone to understand. That is, our mind cannot adequately understand the working of grace. But grace is working through this outward form of Arunachala. This outward form of Arunachala is a very special form because it has this power to turn our mind back within. That's why in the very first verse of Akram, like Bhagavan begins by saying, Arunachala mena ahamainine pava ahatebe arunachala. Arunachala, you eradicate or root out the ego of those who think of you in the heart, but that it has a double meaning there because ahame can mean in the heart. It can also mean only I. Those who who recognize that Aaron actually is only that only that Aaron alone is I, or that Aaron is I itself. Um, those who who think that roots out ego. So. Bhagavan very clearly and intentionally uh, gives room for these verses to be interpreted at two levels. And both levels are true. Both levels are applicable because Arunachala has a, this outward form of Arunachala is endowed with a special power to draw our mind back within. Um, Earlier, I had discussed the meaning, uh, when I was discussing the meaning of the first verse, I discussed also the meaning of verse 10 of Arunacha Patikam, in which Bhagavan very clearly says, Patanam Pudumai, Vivali Kanta Paruvatam. I have seen, Pudumai means um, something new, but in this context, it means something, something extraordinary, something wonderful. I have seen something wonderful. What is that? We Bali Kanta Parvatam, the magnetic hill that forcibly attracts the soul. Parvatam means the hill. So he's particularly referring to this external form of the hill. But what is the nature of the external form of the hill? What is what is the, the action about the, the how does this external form work? He says, um Oru Oru Tarum. That means um, subduing or curbing the activity, the mischievous activity, the mental activity of the soul who thinks of it even once. So if you think even once of this hill, Arunachya will begin to work from within, curbing the, the, the the actual going activity of the mind. And then what he will do? Oru tanadu abimukum aha etu. That means drawing to face itself the one. Itself the one means Arunachi is the one. One can also mean peerless. So he is the one peerless reality, the one, the one and only reality, the peerless, uh, unequaled um, uh, reality. Um, since he says he is the one, there cannot. It's not a matter of one thing. When he says tanadu apimukum, that means to face itself. That, that implies it, it, tanadu could be referring to ourself. It can also be referring to Arunachal. It can give both meanings, but in this context, they, because Arunachal is ourself, so it is not a matter of one thing 
facing another thing, it is we facing ourselves is the implication, because he is one and one without a second, one and indivisible. So pulling, pulling, uh, uh, pulling the mind inwards to face itself. Ade tan bol achilamad do um, making it motionless like itself. That is, achila means uh, motionless or unmoving. So making making the soul of the mind motionless like itself. Um, so how does he make it motionless? By drawing our attention inwards to face itself. To the extent to which our attention goes inwards, the outward running activity of the mind is uh, is curbed, is subdued, and the mind sinks back into the heart and becomes motionless like Aranachala. And then he says, Ab inuye uh, bali column. He takes that sweet soul as bali. Bali means food that is offered by in sacrifice. And when he says that sweet soul, sweet there implies it is when the soul is matured by his um First, uh, putting that thought of him in our mind, but having put that thought of him in our mind, he begins to subdue the outward-going activity of the mind. He draws it back within to face himself alone. He thereby makes the mind motionless like himself, and then he feeds on it. That is, if he, Bali column, he taking it, Bali means he takes it as a sacrificial offering. So we sacrifice ourselves to him, he swallows us, is the implication. And then he says, Ich den, uh, that means what is this? That, impl that implies what a wonder is this. And then he ends this verse by saying, um, uh, to we, we, we mean, that means be saved by thinking. We are Carl souls thinking what Ulum Adanil Oli if we call Arunamagiriye be soiled by thinking of this great Arunagiri, this, this great Aruna hill, um, um, the killer of the soul. We are calling, um, uh, if we are calling this, this, this great Aruna hill, the killer of the soul, uh, Ulum Adil Olia, who shines in the heart. So is he here talking about the external form of a hill? Certainly, because he begins by saying it's a magnetic hill that possibly attracts the soul. But he ends by saying it kills the soul and it is sh it, it shines in the heart. So Aranacha exists both within as our own real nature and externally as the form of this hill. But the the his existing in our heart is his Swarupa, his real form. His external form and his real form work in conjunction to draw our mind within and to, um, uh, so that he can feed upon us. So and there is no doubt about the power of thinking about the external form of our natural. But the, how that for external form of our natural works by drawing our mind to inwards to face his real form, which is that which is shining in our heart as I. So uh, Bhagavan deliberately uh, uh, gives room for many verses to be interpreted at two levels. 
because he, Aaron actually is working in two levels. He's working both outwardly through that external form and inwardly <clears throat> in our heart. And how is he working? He's working without working. He's doing without doing. He's doing everything that needs to be done without doing anything, just by being as his is. Because his, the very nature of his being is grace, is infinite love. So by, by his mere being as he is, by his sanadi visesha matratal, as Bhagavan describes it beautifully in the 15th paragraph of Nana, by the mere special nature of his presence. His presence means his being. By just being as he is, he does all this. So Arunacha does everything without ever doing anything. Doing without doing. That means just being as he is, he draws our mind back within. So yes, definitely Bhagavan, there's no doubt about the power of the external form of Arunacha. Bhagavan has indicated it in so many ways in Arunacha Stuti Panchakam. So the next question. In this path, we are seeking liberation and in order to gain it, there are a number of obstacles and we have to conquer our Vishaya Vasanas and our will. I do feel my mind driving outside to seek experiences, phenomena, and I'm more aware of it now, but the, but I feel my will is still strong. My understanding that I'm doing this, or I should be doing this, or I have this and that, all connected to my will. How can I weaken this will, make it subdue to Aranachala? Thank you. That is the will in its grosser form is what we call likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. These are what constitute the will. But the seeds that give rise to all these likes and dislikes and so on are what are called vishayabhasanas, the inclination of the mind to go outwards towards vishayas. So uh, it boils down to vabhasana. What the will essentially is, is just the totality of all our vasanas. And whose vasanas are they? What is the root of all these vasanas? It is ego, because the vasanas are like the, the leaves and branches. The root is ego. Bhagavan also indirectly uh, compares the Vasanas to an enemy army. The commander-in-chief of the enemy army is ego. That is, we ourselves are the enemy. Uh, we ourselves as ego are the enemy. Uh, our real nature is what we actually are. So the, the enemy, the, the commander-in-chief is powerless without his army. The, even the most powerful general in the world it loses all his power if his army is uh, defeated. So the uh, ego, uh, the, the ego is as strong as its vasanas. But where do the vasanas get their strength from? Only but from ego. That is, the, the vasanas have no strength of their own. Whatever strength the vasanas seem to have is strength we have given them. How do we give strength to the vasanas? By allowing ourselves to be swayed by vasanas, 
we, the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, the stronger it becomes. The more we avoid being swayed by it, the more we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by it, the weaker it becomes. So, since the nature of vasanas is such, we need, we, we, we cannot destroy vasanas all of a sudden. We need to slowly, slowly wean our mind of its vasanas. Why are vasanas so difficult to control? Because they're our own inclinations, our own likings. Why do we? Why are we carried away by our vasanas? Because we like to be carried away by our vasanas. Because our vasanas have a liking to be carried away. So it's a battle, as Bhagavan often said. The whole of the spiritual path is nothing but a battle fought within our own will. The battle between, on the one hand, the sat vasana, the liking to just be as we actually are, to surrender ourselves, and on the other hand. All the Vishaya Vasanas. Sat Vasana is one, Vishaya Vasanas are many. But by the Sat Vasana has been the seed of the Sat Vasana is the seed of love that has been sown in our heart by uh, the grace of, of Bhagavan. So having having sown that seed in our heart, he will nurture it and he will take care of it and he will ensure that it will grow into a big plant. But we have to do our part. We have to how do we water the seed of that satvasana? By attending to ourselves. The more we attend to ourselves, the more we are be, allowing ourselves to be swayed by the satvasana, and so the stronger it becomes. And to the extent that the satvasana becomes strong, the Vishaya Vasanas become weak. So we are all in the same position. This is what Akshramana is all about. Bhagavan because Bhagavan knows what is the struggle of being a spiritual aspirant. We are fighting against our own vasanas. This is not an easy battle to, to fight. So uh, it's only by grace that we can win this battle. And that's what Akshramla is all about. See the meaning of this verse we talked about today. Uneye matri odadu. That is, the nature of mind is to run outwards, constantly cheating on our natural. Um, so that it doesn't run out, he needs to sit firmly on our mind. And the next verse, he is the next verse is a continuation of the same idea. He says, um, the mind which wanders about the world, the mind is constantly roaming about the world. That is not physically, but it, mentally the mind is thinking about things other than itself. That is what Bhagavan calls uh, the mind roaming about the world. So that this mind that roams about this world, seeing you constantly may subside. Or for the mind to subside, seeing you constantly, unnaraheka, you show your beauty. So Arunacha has to reveal himself in our heart in order to draw our mind within. And so... The, all the support is being given by Arunacha. It's Arunacha who, as Bhagavan said, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It is grace that has drawn us to this path. Without grace, we would not have been attracted to this spiritual path at all. So it's grace that has drawn us to this path. It is grace that guides us on this path. It's grace that motivates us on this path, that gives us the, the, the strength and motivation to continue trying against the, the 
the, the strong flood of outward going vasanas, he is giving us the love to try to swim against the current, to hold on to our being. So grace is the beginning, it's starting us on the path. It's the middle, it's what leads us along and motivates us on this path. And grace is the end. That is finally what will happen is grace will swallow us. And what is grace? Grace is our own real nature. Grace is Bhagavan. Grace is Aranachala. So it's all a matter of grace. But grace will grace is playing its part. We need to cooperate by surrendering ourselves to grace. Because grace is not something external to ourselves. It's a, it's it's the love that we as we actually have are, have for ourselves as we actually are. So we as ego need to cooperate with that by trying to turn our mind within. So if you complain about the, the strength of your vasana, the, the, the fact that your mind is constantly going outwards, it is the same for every spiritual aspirant. No spiritual aspirant has succeeded in this path without going through this fight. In the case of Bhagavan, it seemed to be very easier. The 16-year-old boy, he got a fear of death, and at once his mind turned within. But Bhagavan himself, when he was asked about this, he said, for those for whom it seems to happen effortlessly in the final birth, it's because in previous lives, they've done all the work that is necessary. So uh, in previous lives, that that jiva that was aware of itself, that soul, that ego that was aware of itself as I and Venkataraman have been through all this. So it was a, it was an inuir, as Bhagavan describes it in, in verse, uh, uh, nine, verse 10 of uh, Arunachapatikam. It was a sweet soul. It was fully mature. So Arunachapatikam, just by giving a small fear of death, he was able to swallow it. So, uh, but that is because all the work can be done in previous lives. So Bhagavan said, nobody can get this without going through this struggle. This is not, uh, Bhagavan said, birth control is not your mind, is not, birth control is not your birthright. You have to work for it. So we have to, we have to be willing to, uh, however many times our mind goes outwards, we need to try and turn it back within. We need to, be constantly trying to surrender ourselves to him by holding on to our being. So there, there is no shortcut. This is the direct path. There's no, there's no means shorter than the direct path. The direct path is the shortest path. So uh, this is the shortcut, turning back towards ourselves and trying to hold on to our own being more and more and more. This is the only way. And we, we, we cannot succeed in this path without putting in the hard work of however many times our mind goes outwards, we need to bring it back within and try to hold on to self-attentiveness. So the struggles you are going through is the struggles we're all going through. As Bhagavan makes so clear in these verses of Akshramlai, this Akshramlai is a song all about this struggle that we are all undergoing. So I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Okay, uh, the next question. If the self or Arunachala can manifest in any form, if my Ishta Devata is Krishna and my Guru Mantra is a Krishna Mantra, 
Can I recite, can I recite this mantra whilst contemplating on Arunachala as the self or Krishna? Thank you. Who is Krishna? What does Krishna say in the Gita? Ahamatma Gudakesha. I am Atma. So Krishna is that which is shining in us as, uh, as I. So there's no difference between Arunachala and Krishna. They are just different names given to the one reality that is always shining in our heart as I. And what is the instruction given by Krishna in the Gita? Um, uh, there's a, a, a verse, I, I think it's uh, chapter, chapter 6, verse 20. Five or so. Um, Bhagavan has, it's one of the verses Bhagavan has translated into um, into uh, into Tamil. Um, uh, yes, verse verse twenty five. Um, the the meaning of uh, the verse is "Diram se buddhinal." This is Bhagavan's translation. Uh, by a mind which is endowed with uh, courage, with uh, steadfastness. Um, uh, chittate, chittate means the mind, mella mella, slowly, slowly. In Sanskrit, Krishna says, sane sane, gradually, gradually, slowly, slowly. Uh, nera seya vendum nischalana. We have to make the mind slowly nischala. We need to slowly bring the mind to that 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 state of motionlessness, that state of Aranatra, Achalatvam, Nishchala. Um, Maratane, Maratane means great charioteer, because Arjun, though Krishna is the charioteer of, um, of, of, uh, of is, is Arjuna's charioteer. Arjuna is a charioteer in his own right, because he's a great uh, king, a great warrior. So that's why Bhagavan used this term, Maratane, means great, great charioteer. And then Bhagavan's translation of the last two lines is Chittate Atma Bil Satidika. Fix the mind in uh, in yourself. Matredovum Itaneum Enidade. Do not think even in the slightest of anything else whatsoever. In the original Sanskrit, what Krishna says is Atma Samsam Manakritva. Make the mind fixed in yourself, in, in oneself, in yourself. Nakinchitapi uh, Chintayat. Uh, do not think at all of anything else. So, what Krishna is teaching us to do. In Gita is exactly what Bhagavan is teaching us to do, to, to slowly, slowly bring the mind which is, whose nature is to wander out. The next verse continues, Bhagavan translated the next verse, verse 26 also, um, uh, which, which means the nature of the mind is ever unsteady, it's ever going outwards, but however much it goes outwards, we need to constantly bring it back within. So what Krishna is teaching us in Gita, of course, Krishna gives many teachings in Gita to suit many different people, but the essence of Gita is what he's teaching us in these verses, which is the practice of self-investigation, of turning our mind within. This is the direct path. Why? Because he, a Krishna is that which is shining in our heart as ourself. So there is no, but that which appeared as Bhagavan Krishna is also that that appeared as Bhagavan Ramana. They are, they are one and the same. There's no difference at all. It's only because of our outward looking mind, 
we see different names and different we, we see different forms and give them different names so we see differences but if we look within we will see that Bhagavan Ramana, Bhagavan Krishna, Arunachala, all are one and the same. They are all that which is shiny in our heart as I. So if if you're if you if you've come to if by repeating your Krishna mantra, you have come to Bhagavan, that means Krishna himself has sent you to Bhagavan in order to to get you to follow this path, but Krishna had already taught you in the Gita. So there's no doubt that following Bhagavan's path is following the ultimate path taught by Krishna. Krishna, because he's Krishna, he had to, in the Bhagavad Gita, he had to give so many teachings. Um, he started off with the very highest Advaita teachings, but because Krishna, because Arjuna was not able to grasp, he came down and gave so many other teachings. So, um, if on the pretext of teaching Arjuna, he has given teachings to all of us, teachings to suit us at different levels of our spiritual development. But ultimately, what is the ultimate part? It is turning our mind within, fixing it in ourselves, and not thinking of anything else. Sunday, Sunday, gradually, gradually. Atma samsta manakritva, fixing the mind in yourself. Do not think of anything else. Thank you so much. Thank you. Right. Okay, so the next question. Um, I always feel that my spiritual state varies from time to time. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed with my vasanas and it takes a while to return to my rather calm state. Also, I suffer from weak willpower. Do we need to do positive karma to help us turn within? Um, firstly, our spiritual state is the one thing that never changes. Our spiritual state is our being. I am. That ever remains unchanging. What is changing is the mind. The very nature of the mind is to be constantly changing. So don't worry about the, the fickle nature of the mind. The mind is, 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 is fickle by its very nature. It will constantly be going outwards. Doesn't matter. However many times it goes outwards, what do we have to do? We have to bring it back within. Um, regarding having weak will, um, what is meant by weak will when we when we have contrary desires when we now now we are all in a situation on the one hand we want to go within but on the other hand we still have so much liking to go outwards so because of our liking to go outwards our love to turn within seems to be weak that is what we call being weak-willed. We, we, because we are not yet willing to let go of all our other desires and have wholehearted love for ourselves. But the only way to succeed is by constantly trying uh, to turn within. Regarding karmas, we need not do any karmas. But Bhagavan's path is not a path of doing, it's a path of being, it's a path of surrendering. For those whose minds are very outward going, nishkarmiya karma is taught. That is doing action for the love of God, not for the fulfillment of, of any desires. Um, that is good. Whatever, so long as we are 
as we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be this body consisting of body, speech, and mind. And so we we seem to be doing actions by mind, speech, and body. Whatever actions we do, we shouldn't be doing these for the fulfillment of our desires. We should do it. Whatever we do, we should do it in the spirit of surrender to Bhagavan. Just for the love of Bhagavan, we do whatever our, our circumstances call upon us to do. But uh, so if we act in that way, that will to some extent purify the mind. But now we've come to Bhagavan's path. This is something far more advanced than just doing Nishkarmiya karma. This is uh, the, the, the best Nishkarmiya karma is meditating on God uninterruptedly, as Bhagavan says in verse 7 of Upadesha India, better than the actions of the, the, the Nishkarmiya karma done by body, Nishkarmiya karma means the desireless action done for the love of God, the, the actions of that kind that we do by body is called puja. The actions that we do by speech is called japa. The actions that we do by mind is called dhyana. In this order, each one is more efficacious than the previous one. Efficacious means they're more effective in purifying the mind. So the best action we can do uh, by mind is to meditate on God without interruption. However, in the next verse, verse 8, Bhagavan says, rather than meditating on God as something other than ourselves, as Anya, Meditating on him as not other than ourselves, with the understanding that he is I, that is the best among all. But meditating on, on ourself alone is not an action. So if we are meditating on God as something other than yourself, your attention is moving away from yourself towards that thought of God as something other than yourself. But when you recognize that God is that which is shining in your heart as I, and therefore meditate only on I, that is not an action. That is a, a cessation of action. Because when we turn our attention back within, the mind thereby subsides and merges back into its source. So we, when, we, when we leave behind the Anya Baba, taking God to be something other than ourselves, and recognize that God is nothing other than ourselves, and therefore meditate upon him as I alone, we are leaving behind action, and we are coming to the state of just being as we actually are. How can we be as we actually are? Only by holding on to our being, only by holding on to I am. So once we have come to Bhagavan's path, the karmas become, of course, body, speech, and mind will continue doing action, but that's no longer important. What's important is turning our mind back within and thereby surrendering ourselves to him. So don't worry about uh, nishkarmiya karma. When you do actions, do it without desire for the fruit. But the main thing is not whether you're doing action with desire or without desire. The main thing is holding on to your being and thereby going beyond action. Bhagavan's path is not a path of doing, it's a path of being. And because our real nature is being, how can we attain our real nature? How can we know our real nature except by being as we actually are? So we need to, we, we need to leave behind this doing. Doing is for the ego who takes this mind, speech, and body to be itself. When we come to Bhagavan's path, we are questioning the very existence of ego.
I hope that is a helpful answer. So uh, the next question, um, Supreme Bliss Ananda is our real nature. So why is dispassion for objects, vairagya, and withdrawing the mind recommended and not rasa vada, being simply aware of the essence of bliss in objects without attachment to them? Because so long as our mind is going outwards, the happiness that we experience seems to come from the external objects. If you have desire for some external object, and when you get that, you seem to, it seems to give you some pleasure, some happiness, but the happiness is not coming from that object. It's coming only from within you. But you cannot see that so long as you allow your mind to go outwards. So long as you're allowing your mind to go outwards, the happiness seems to be coming from the external things. So it, why Vairagya is necessary? Because we need to stop allowing our mind to go outwards. So long as the mind is going outwards, we... Ego is nourished and sustained by attending to things other than itself. So by allowing our mind to go outwards, we are feeding this ego. And ego is the fundamental ignorance that prevents us recognizing that happiness is our own real nature. So if you want to experience that, that rasa vada or whatever you say, you need to turn within because that rasa that happiness, that joy, is only in your own heart. You can experience it as it is, only by turning within. So long as you're allowing the mind to go outwards, whatever happiness you're enjoying is only a tiny, tiny, uh, uh, a tiny fraction, uh, a, a reflection of a tiny fraction of that infinite happiness that you actually are. So to to experience the infinite happiness that you actually are, you need to turn your mind within. As Bhagavan says in the first sentence of uh, Nana, that, that paragraph, first paragraph of Nana was not part of the original answers that Bhagavan gave to Shiva Prashant Palai. When Bhagavan rewrote Nana as an essay, he added that first paragraph. And in the first sentence, he says, since all living beings like to be happy always, since everyone has the greatest love only for oneself, we all love ourselves more than we love any other thing, since happiness alone is the cause of love, why do we love ourselves? Because happiness is our real nature, is the implication. Uh, in order to attain that happiness, which is our own real nature, our, our own swabhava, which we experience daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind. In sleep, there's no mind. That means there's nothing else other than our own survival, our own nature. And in sleep, we are perfectly happy. Why? Because happiness is our real nature. So with, in the absence of all the external phenomena, we are perfectly happy in sleep. So in order to know that happiness, which is our own real nature, uh, um, um, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. Adaku for that, nana ennum jnana vicharame mukhya sadhanam. For that, uh, this, uh, 
jnana vichara, that means awareness investigation, who am I, is the principal means. So without turning within, we cannot experience the infinite happiness that we actually are. So rather than, than seeking happiness in things other than ourselves, we need to seek happiness in ourselves. In order to seek happiness in ourselves, we need to give up desire for all other things. So we need to be willing to surrender ourselves, to let go of all other things. That is why vairagya is absolutely essential. Because the happiness we seem to have derived from external things is not real happiness at all. It's just a, a, a very, uh, very um, faint reflection of the infinite happiness that we actually are. So we can never be satisfied by allowing the mind to go outwards. If we want to experience complete and absolute satisfaction, we need to turn back within. I hope that adequately answers that question. Right, so the next question, <clears throat> not sure where I read this, but it may have been from Major Chadwick. He was saying that Bhagavan seemed unsympathetic towards people who were mentally ill. He would seem to completely lack interest and would talk to them as though they could snap out of it if they tried. The Major, or whoever it was who wrote this, said that it was a mystery to him that Bhagavan, who was normally loving towards just about everyone, had this one exception. What would be the explanation for Bhagavan's complete indifference to people who are mentally ill, or is this a false account? Um, well, that is obviously a generalization, just because but how Bhagavan, Bhagavan is equally loving to all. But what is the appropriate way of his expressing his love is uh, he alone knows that. Sometimes in Bhagavan's presence, those who were closest to him, in the sense that those who were truly following his path, he would outwardly be seemingly, he would seem to ignore them. He would seem to give more attention to those, to the less mature aspirant, those who uh, who want to chat about this and that and everything, he would seem to give more attention to them. He would seem to give less attention to those who are really following this path. Why is that? Because he's encouraging them to turn within. So we cannot tell from his outward behavior that we we, we can't. We can't fathom his outward behavior, why he treats some in this way and others in that way. It, um, if, if sometimes he was seemingly uh, indifferent to those who had mental health problems, and it, it's obviously a gross generalization because there are so many stories of people who came to Bhagavan in great distress. There's a story about some... Uh, some person who had lost, I can't remember if it was a he or she, a man, they had lost their husband or wife and children and all their family they had lost somehow. Uh, in, uh, they were bereaved and they were in in distraught with, uh, with so much mental anguish. But when they came to Bhagavan, by be, merely being in Bhagavan's presence, they found the consolation, but they couldn't find anywhere else. So Bhagavan 
Bhagavan's kindness is an infinite ocean. Nobody is excluded from Bhagavan's kindness. We cannot tell from his outward behavior how he is bestowing his kindness upon each one. It is true, ultimately, that is nowadays it is said mental illness is caused by um by biochemical, by, by certain chemical um certain brain chemistry causes certain states of mind. That is the, the conclusion of modern science. But that is all we can say, but that is those scientists may have found a correlation between the chemistry of the brain and the state of mind of a person. But who is to say what is the cause and what is the effect? All, when you see two things are correlated, you can't, it, it, they, they, just because the brain is in a certain, the, the chemical state of the brain is in a certain condition, and there happens to be depression, you can't say the chemical condition of the brain is the cause of the depression. Why don't you say the depression is the cause of the chemical condition of the brain? So all you can, all you can fairly say is there is a correlation. You can't say one, which cause, which is the cause and which is the effect. Ultimately, the cause of everything is ego and its fasteners. So ultimately, we are all responsible for our own mind. A person who is mentally ill may have very strong vasanas, vasanas that are so strong that they may seem to be unable to control their vasanas. But what are vasanas? Vasanas are our inclinations. We, it may seem very difficult for us to curb our inclinations, but inclinations are only inclinations. We, we are not bound to act according to our inclinations. When we act according to our inclinations, it's because we allow ourselves to be. So maybe if, if Bhagavan seemed to be indifferent to a certain person who was in a, suffering from uh, mental illness, ultimately the truth is we're all suffering from mental illness. Why? Because the mind itself is a disease. Mind is, rising as ego, that is the root of all disease. That is the first disease. So there is no one who is in a mentally sound condition. The only mentally sound condition is manonasa, the state where there's no mind at all. Then, Because the mind itself is a is a perversion, a distortion. We rise as ego or mind by taking ourselves to be what we are not, by taking ourselves to be this body. So we are all, uh, in one form or other, we are all suffering from mental illness because the mind is itself an illness. But some people, the, the mental illness seem, may seem to be more out of control than others. The reason for this is a mixture of their past uh, vasanas and their destiny and so on. We cannot see the bigger picture. Bhagavan can see the bigger picture. So what is the appropriate way to treat each person he, he is known only to him and he does accordingly. And this, this, what if Chadwick wrote that, yes, it is true. Ultimately, we each have the ability to snap out of it. If we may not be, it may seem to us that we cannot snap out of it, but we can at least begin to snap out of it by trying to turn our attention within. So though we may at times be in a state where we, we are unable to surrender ourselves, unable to turn our mind within, 
ultimately we are responsible. We can begin, at least we can pray to Bhagavan. We can, we can begin to open our heart to grace, to recognizing our own weakness, our own inability, praying for the help that we all require. So um, it, it is wrong to think but just because Bhagavan outwardly seems to be indifferent, but inwardly he's indifferent. He is not indifferent to anything. He is the infinite ocean of compassion. He loves all of us as himself. But whereas we see ourselves as this small person, he doesn't see ourselves as this small person. He sees us as we actually are. So he loves us as we actually are. That is why he was equally kind and loving both to the good people and to some of the people who came to Bhagavan were very, very bad people. I mean, it wasn't only saints around Bhagavan. All sorts of people came to Bhagavan with all sorts of uh, past karmas and everything. But Bhagavan was kind to everyone. He was kind to the, those with very strong egos and those who were very humble. He was equally kind to everyone. His outward behavior may be different to different people, but the inner kindness, the inner love was the same for everyone. So um, uh, it, it is, it is a, a misunderstanding if someone if, if someone generalizes and say Bhagavan is is indifferent to all uh, people who are suffering from mental illness, he may in certain cases have outwardly appeared indifferent. Maybe because he wanted them to begin to take responsibility to to recognize that they have to. If you want to restore your mental health which we can do ultimately only by destroying the mind, but at least to get ourselves back in a more balanced state of mind, we have to be willing to put in the work. So who knows? We, we can't understand these things. Bhagavan alone knows why he, how he, behave, why he behaves as he behaves towards each particular individual. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. And I think, Michael, that's probably automatic so far as Bhagavan is concerned, because there's no, there's yes. no personal interest. It just happens. Of course, it's all automatic. As yeah. Bhagavan said, it's all a divine automatic activity, because Bhagavan has no doership. Bhagavan is bestowing his grace just by being as he is. So what, however he acted, however we see that person called Bhagavan acting outwardly, is what is the appropriate way uh, for that uh, for that outward form of Bhagavan to behave? But inwardly, Bhagavan is just being as he is, and his his very being is infinite love. So, what Chadwick has written—that's an interesting observation. But we shouldn't jump to a conclusion. But Bhagavan is uh, either. But Bhagavan is indifferent to anyone. Bhagavan is not indifferent. Bhagavan is equally kind to everyone, though it may not always show outwardly. Um, and we shouldn't uh, come to a generalization that Bhagavan will treat all people who suffer from mental illness the same. Because, of course, there are so many different types of mental illness. It manifests in so many different forms. So we, we can't make generalizations like that. But the observation is an interesting observation. That's all we can do. But let us not jump to, uh, to hasty conclusions. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Michael. <clears throat> That's a brilliant answer. Thank you. Right. 
And to some extent, we may draw a conclusion based on our own uh, mental framework as well. Exactly. We are, we are all doing that. We, none of us know Bhagavan as he actually is. We are all seeing Bhagavan through our own colored glasses. That's why any reminiscences or any stories about Bhagavan, we have to take them with a pinch of salt because we are seeing Bhagavan through the eyes of whoever is, is telling that reminiscence or telling that story. That's why sometimes when, when I first came to Ramanasham back in the 70s, there were still so many old devotees, many of whom had been with Bhagavan from Skandashram days or even Virupakshi days. So there were people who had been many, many years with Bhagavan. And sometimes you'd hear a, a story from one devotee. And when you mention the story to another devotee, they say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't like that. I was there. It was like this. Two people, both were there at the time, both have completely different versions of the same story because each is seeing Bhagavan's action through their own colored glasses, the colored glasses of our mind. So we, we need to take all these stories with a pinch of salt. We, we need to take all, that, all people's interpretations of these stories also with, a pinch, with an even larger pinch of salt. But inevitably, when we tell a story, when we recount something that we, rem something that we remember from the past, we will be in our interpretation of that story will inevitably part be part of our storytelling. That's why stories get 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 changed as time as they pass from from one person to another. It, it, the stories get the details of the stories, the interpretations of the stories change. So we any story about Bhagavan, we 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 need to uh, uh, we, we shouldn't just accept it as it is. We, we, we need to say, that is how this particular person saw Bhagavan. That is not how Bhagavan actually is. If we want to know how Bhagavan actually is, we need to turn within and see how we are actually are, because Bhagavan is what we actually are. So long as we see ourselves as a person, we cannot know Bhagavan as he actually is. Fortunately for us, though we cannot rely on the stories about Bhagavan, what we can rely on is his teachings, because he himself has written his teachings. So we need have no doubt about what his teachings are, because all the fundamental principles of his teachings can be found in his own original writings. So we need have no doubt about his teachings, about the stories about him, that there's every reason for us to doubt the various different versions of the stories that we hear. Um, but as Sadhuam used to say, Bhagavan didn't come just to be the story, the subject of a story. Of course, we can learn a lot from the outward actions of Bhagavan, but that wasn't the main purpose of his life. He didn't come to be just to be a subject of a story. He came to give us teachings, and those teachings are to be found in his original writings. If we want to understand Bhagavan, don't rely on the uh, on the stories. Follow the teachings. Then only can you know Bhagavan as he really is, by knowing yourself as you really are. Okay, so the next question is actually, the, it's in two parts. Well, there are two questions. Okay, maybe if you read, if I answer one part, uh, one part at a time, otherwise I tend to forget. No, but this, the second one is a very easy one to remember. I can probably... Okay, <laughs> but by that time I'll have forgotten the first one. <laughs> 
I read that the Ashtavakra Gita was one of Bhagavan's favorite texts. Did Bhagavan recommend any books for devotees to read outside of one's practice? And then the second thing is, what is the I thought and where is it located? So okay. <laughs> okay. Firstly, um, people often say certain texts were were favorite texts of Bhagavan. That is one thing that is often said is that Ribu Gita is was a, a text that Bhagavan often recommended and he recommended recitation of it. Um, <clears throat> the central theme of Ribu Gita is I am not this body, I am Shiva, I am God, or I am Brahman, or whatever. It's said in so many different ways, but such texts are useful in the same way but in a kindergarten, uh, learning the ABC and learning the timetable is useful. We all have to go through kindergarten and learn the ABC and learn our times table and everything. At, at, at that stage, that is what is necessary. But we don't continue reciting A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and uh, one times one is two, two times two is four, etc. When we go when when we go to more advanced classes, once we've learned it, it's it's part of us. Then we go on to learn more advanced things. So, a text like Ribu Gita is a very good introductory textbook to Advaita. It teaches the basic principles of Advaita, and it dins them in by repetition. So, um, Bhagavan may have in encourage that for certain people, but that doesn't mean it's universally applicable. Bhagavan's own teachings are far deeper. Ashtavakra Gita is generally considered to be a much deeper text. of. Uh, it's often people say it's the most advanced uh, text of, uh, of Advaita. It's, it's telling the real heart of Advaita philosophy. But if you compare Ashtavakra Gita, for example, to Uludunapadu, which is a more useful text? Uludunapadu undoubtedly. Uludunapadu is much deeper and much more practical. So for certain people, Bhagavan may have, have suggested you can read the text. Um, that if someone knows Sanskrit, if they're interested in these things, he may say, okay, you re read Ashtavakra Gita. But people are very keen to say, Bhagavan recommended this text, Bhagavan recommended that text. The truth is, if at all Bhagavan recommended anything, he recommended term within, see yourself, be as you actually are. That is the heart of Bhagavan's teaching. These other texts are useful to the extent to which they help encourage us to term within. But as far as I as far as I'm aware, I have not I've not come across any text that can be compared in in its practical value to the uh, uh, writings of Bhagavan, works like Upadeshundia, Uludunapadu, Amavidya, uh, Apalapatu, uh, um, Nana, these texts are so practical, such useful texts, and they teach us all the basic philosophy in a very, very simple manner. A lot of these old texts, they unnecessarily complicate things, whereas Bhagavan keeps things very, very simple and very practical. And most useful of all, a text like what we're talking about now, Arunacha Ashtakshramlai, because this is an applied textbook.
This is uh, when you actually begin to apply what Bhagavan has taught us in Nana, Uladunapadu, Upadeshundia, Amabide, and so on. Whatever practical difficulties you come across, that is what Akshramlai is talking about. So this is this is the most the deepest and most practical text of all. So when we when we've had the good fortune of 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 relish of being able to relish at least to a certain extent Bhagavan's works, all these older texts, even Ashtavakra Gita, pale. Uh, in comparison. So, um, for certain people, Bhagavan may have, uh, may be thinking that they, these, these knowing that these people were, were more ready to believe ancient texts than what he is saying. He may have encouraged them. Who knows? Who knows? But I, I personally, um, wouldn't attach importance to all this, uh, what people say, oh, Bhagavan recommended this text, Bhagavan recommended that text. He, he may, in certain circumstances, have recommended to certain people, but he didn't merely recommend Uladunapri, he didn't merely recommend Akshramlai, he actually wrote them for us, for our benefit. So let us be benefited by his writings, rather than uh, allowing our mind to go away to all these other things. Um, so, uh, okay, someone has just asked a question. Where can we find the book Uludunapadu? Uludunapadu is a very small book. It's a poem of just 40 verses, well, 42, because it's got two Mangalam verses. So it is a very brief but very compact text. Full, all the principles that we need to know to follow this spiritual path are there in Uludunapadu. But in a very, it's a very deep, it, it's a very simple but very deep and subtle text. So um, where it's available, there are many English translations. Unfortunately, um, most of them are not very satisfactory because in order to understand, in order to translate Bhagavan, we not, firstly, the, the language is somewhat difficult because he, Bhagavan wrote these poems in, 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 in a classical style of Tamil literature, which even many Tamilians have difficulty in understanding. Um, but more important than understanding the language is understanding the subject matter. If we don't have a deep and clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, it's very easy to misinterpret when we translate. And when we see translations of Uludunapadu, unfortunately, there are, many of them are just a very imprecise translations, but many of them also uh, misinterpret the text in, in, in very, very significant ways. So, the, 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 the good, there are relative, there are many translations, relatively few of them are good trans, are, are really uh, accurate uh, translations, really conveying what Bhagavan meant. Um, I have a translation, it's available on my blog. If you go to my website, happinessofbeing.com, in the sidebar, you'll see a link to it. Um, I, I have spent many, I've spent more than, what, I don't know how long it is now, 40, 46 years now, I think, since I first came to Bhagavan. So, so I spent 46 years working on that translation, refining it gradually as time goes on, as my own understanding deepens. So I don't think you can find a more accurate uh, translation. That is, it's accurate, and it's also 
conveying by, not only the meaning, because what's important in Bhagavan's works is not just the meaning of the verses, what is the implication? So I've done my best to bring out not only the meaning, but also the implication. So that you can find on my blog. As I say, there's a link to it in the sidebar of my website. It's not yet available in a book form. Maybe someday it will be. But um, if you if you want to have it in book form, you can copy and paste it, put it in a Word document and print it or whatever. But if, the translation is there for anyone who wants it. And I'm sorry to be blowing my own trumpet. It's not I'm not blowing my own trumpet to say I'm a better translator than others. I just... By Bhagavan's grace, I firstly, I had a, a great good fortune of studying these works under the guidance of Sadhu Om. So I came to know what is the correct interpretation, how they, can, how they have been misinterpreted by others. So that was a great blessing. And by Bhagavan's grace, I've been dwelling on this subject for the last 46 years. Um, so I think I, I'm in as good a position as anyone to translate it into English, and I've done my best there. So um, I, I think you will find my translation. I'm not saying there's not room for improvement, but it, it's as good as I can make it so far. So then the, the latter part of his question was, what is the I thought and where is it located? Okay. You, you are the I thought. That is, I thought means ego. Uh, ego is a thought. Why? Because it, Bhagavan explains the nature of ego in uh, several verses of Uludhunapdu. For example, in verse 24, he says, the insentient body does not say I. What he means there by body is not just the physical body, He's using the term body to refer to all the five sheaves. So the five sheaves is the physical form of the body, the, the prana or life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. These five he collectively calls body, and he says this is jada, and it does not say I. When he says it does not say I, he means it is not aware of itself as I, because it's jada. Jada means it's not aware. So it's not aware of itself as I. That's the first sentence. The second sentence is satchit udiyadu. The, the uh, satchit, satchit means being awareness, uh, does not rise. Then he says in the third sentence, in between one thing I rises as the extent of a body. One thing I means one thing called I rises as the extent of a body. That what he refers to there as one thing I is ego or the thought called I. And he it rises it to the extent of a body. What he means is uh, since it rises, it's not such it. Since it's I, since it's aware of itself as I, it is not the body. It's so it's that's why he says it's in between. It's neither this nor that, but it's in between also in the sense that it partakes the properties of both. Like such it, it's aware of itself as I. Like the body, it seems to be limited and it rises and, and subsides. So um, it borrows the properties of both. Like if if um, if there's a if there's a story in the newspaper, you read a story and you ask your friend, 
is this story true or not? If you're a bit doubtful about whether it's true, your friend may say, it's not true, it's not false, it's somewhere in between. What does that mean? It's neither entirely true, nor is it entirely false. It's got some elements of truth and some elements of fiction, such as ego. It's neither the body, nor is it such it, but it borrows elements of both. Um, and also it's in between in the sense, but the only link between such it and the body is this ego. Ego is the, is the go-between, so to speak. And then in the next verse, in the next sentence, he says um, about this one thing called I, he says, this is chit jadagranti. Chit jadagranti means chit means awareness. It's referring to satchit, the, the pure being awareness. Jada means what is not aware. That's referring to the body. Granti means a not. So when when awareness seems to become entangled with the body, the resulting not is this ego. That is, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. I am is the nature of satchit. Body is the body. So the, the I am is the chit element of ego. Uh, body is the jada element. When these become entangled, when they're conflated together, when we take ourselves to be, I am this body, that is ego. That is the thought called I. So he says, this is chichadagranti bandham. This is bondage. Why? Because we're bound to this, we are bound to this body by taking it ourselves to be I. This is uh, chichadagranti bandham uh, jivan. This is jiva, the soul. Uh, nupame, the subtle body. Uh, 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 ahande, uh, ego. Ichamsaram, this samsara, uh, that is samsara. What is the root of samsara? It's nothing but this ego. For whom is samsara? Only for ego. So ego itself is the essence of samsara. Um, and manam, it's mind. That is what the mind essentially is, is only ego. So, uh, that this is here, Bhagavan is telling you what is I thought. That is what, what is what, why does he say it's a thought? Because the body is only a thought. So, though, since ego is a mixture of what is real, namely Satchit, the, the, the fundamental awareness I am, and this body, which is just a thought, that mixture of Satchit and a thought is itself a thought. That is the, the I am this body. The, the false awareness, I am this body, is a thought. But it's a thought unlike all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are jada. No other thought is aware of itself. But the I thought, the thought called I, in Tamil he calls it nan enum ninebu. That means the thought called I. Um, it, it is a thought. It is the, it's the thought that knows all other thoughts. That is, all other thoughts appear only in the view of ego. So, e ego, the I thought, is the subject. All other thoughts are objects. So, um, what is the I thought? It is the subject, the knower of all objects. Where is it? Well, it's obviously not among objects, because all objects are uh, anya. That's things that we know as something other than ourselves. Where is it? You, where you are, there is the I thought. You are the I thought. That is, you as ego are the I thought. What you actually are is not the I thought, but just the fundamental awareness I am. So when we are investigating ourselves, we are turning our attention back towards ourselves. 
uh, in Sanskrit, the I thought is called aham vritti. Vritti means, uh, in this context, it means a mental, a mental modification, we can say. So the, the, the aham vritti means I thought. In, there's a place, portion in Maharshi's gospel where Bhagavan, where someone is questioning Bhagavan about why self-investigation is the only effective means to, uh, and, uh, to bring about the annihilation of mind. And Bhagavan says, um, that person says, but ego can take so many forms. Bhagavan says, whatever forms the ego may take. That is, ego is actually a formless phantom, but ego takes, identifies itself as this body, so it takes a form. So Bhagavan says, whatever form the ego um, may take doesn't matter. What ego essentially is, is the chit jadagranti. It is this knot formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. So in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego. Uh, uh, the essential chit aspect of ego means the I am portion. We, what, ego is the mixed awareness. I am this person. I am Michael or I am whoever. I'm not, when I investigate myself, I'm not investigating Michael. I'm not investigating his body or his mind or the, the thoughts or the desires or the likes or dislikes or anything. I'm not investigating the person I seem to be. I'm investigating I. That is, the, the I portion of the ego is what we are to investigate. Um, uh, something I was going to say in that context. Oh, yeah. And he says there, in your investigation into the source of the Ahambriti. So what does he mean by the source? Ego is the false awareness, I am this body. From where did this false awareness, I am this body, arise? It can only rise from the real awareness I am. That is, what exists without ever rising and subsiding is Satchit. Ego rises, where can it rise from? Only from Satchit, from what is permanent. In sleep, what exists is only I am, Satchit. When we, in waking and dream, we rise as ego. So from where have we risen? We, we have risen from that which alone exists in the absence of ego. That is I am. That is Satchit. So the source of the Ahambriti is I am. That is the chit portion of, I, of Ahambriti. So when Bhagavan says, in your investigation into the source of the Ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect. That essential chit aspect is I am, which is the source of ego, which is the source that he's referring to there. So, uh, we, we need not be concerned about the I thought as such. What we are to investigate is the essential I-ness in the I thought, that the I am portion. We, we are not investigating our rising, we're investigating our being. We're investigating the source from which this ego rises. That source is not a place in time or space, because time or sp and space exist only in the view of ego. That source is our own being, I am. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. I think that's all the questions there are, but there is one comment that you might like to say something about. And there's also Francis Bitterly, but I'll answer that comment and then I'll answer Francis Bitterly. Okay. Um, you also recommended The Path of Sri Ramana by Sadhu Om. Mm. The only copy I've seen of it for sale is on Amazon and it's a hundred pound plus. 
It seems there are very few copies published. That was just a comment. Yeah, very, very, that is, it's out of print. It's been out of print for a while. A, a new edition is under preparation. It's nearly completed. That is the... The earlier translation was not such a good translation and also was not a complete translation because more was added in Tamil after it was translated. So now a revised translation is coming out. It's still not a perfect translation, but it's a big improvement on the earlier translation. Um, I think it's just in the final stages now. I think the, I think the only delay is the, the Bhakti chapter, which is a very big chapter. That is... Um, I'm not quite sure what stage that is, but I hope that's nearing completion. So I hope within the next two or three months, the new edition will come out, which will be a, a more complete edition and, a, and an improved translation. And well, that, will, that will become available on Amazon. Oh, it'll be on Kindle or something like that. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. I don't know whether a Kindle copy will be available immediately, but it's been published as a hard as a the hard copy is being published by kindle right. which is the amazon publishing wing okay you. you said there was one other thing you wanted to oh, oh and francis bitterly has his hand up hi michael how hi. are you hi so the i am which is a uh, uh this is an intellectual question i'll Best, but uh, staying in the I am is, is, is uh, outside of self-inquiry is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. But my intellect continues to question that there's a, the self is beyond, the, the luminous, boundless, eternal, unknowable self, un indescribable self is beyond even this this awareness of being conscious, the I am. So the I am is, is wonderful and it's the, the, the portal, but what we are is the unborn. No, the, the, in, the, un, beyond the, you know, prior to manifestation, uh, you know, the, the unknowing eternal. Yes, but that is, self. That, I am means I exist. It's I am is our existence, our being. That is what you refer to as the beyond, what you refer to as the self. That is what is shining in the heart of each one of us as I am. When Bhagavan talks about I am, he's talking about our being, our fundamental awareness of our own existence. Nothing is beyond that. That alone is what, that is our real nature. That is what we actually are. There is nothing beyond that. And it is not unknowable. It is the one thing we always know. Bhagavan often used to say, if jnana were a knowledge to be newly attained... Sorry? We, we, we're all, the I am is only here because of, you know, our, the, the, the seed that was manifested no. out, of the, out of the eternal unknowable, unmanifested. I I am is not I am is is the is the is the is the I am is Brahman Aham Brahmasmi I am is the name of God I am that I am God says in the Bible I am refers to the ultimate reality there is no reality beyond I am 
our own being here and now, that is Brahman. That is God. That is what we actually are. There's nothing beyond that. And that is, it is unborn. There is never a moment when we are not aware of our own existence. So that, that I am is Satchit. Sat means being. Chit means awareness. I refers to our awareness. So it's only what is aware is aware. I is the pronoun that refers to that which is aware. Am refers to our being. So I am is our being awareness, such it. That is the ultimate. There's nothing beyond that. You yourself are that. Tatvamasi. That is one only without a second. Anyone who tells you there's anything beyond that, how can you know anything beyond? I am is your very being. See, I see the I am as the, uh, you know, the, the, that was, the I am is the consciousness embodied. No, that is ego. But that that is Bhagavan, Bhagavan clearly distinguished ego from our real nature. Our real nature is I am. Ego is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am Francis. So I am Francis is ego. The pure I am, yes. bereft of Francis, that, that is your real nature. That is what you actually are. Understood. Understood. But prior, the, the, before there was four years old of age or before the birth, of the, the seed for the body, the, the I am did not know itself. It was the eternal self. I uh, am unmanifested. What do you mean by unmanifested? The, the one thing it is Swayam Prakash, it, it's ever shining. That, that, yes. that is what we actually are, our being is, is it self-awareness. We, we are always aware of our own existence. In waking, the one thing that is constant through, throughout all our experience, in waking, dream, and sleep, the one thing that is constant is this fundamental awareness, I am. In waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves not just as I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person, I am this body, and consequently we're aware of so many other things. In sleep, we're aware of ourselves as just I am, and therefore we're not aware of anything other than our own being. We're not aware of anything other than I am. So I am is, is the fundamental reality. As I say, I, 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 I refers to this. chit, am refers to uh, sat, our being. So we, there's nothing beyond that. that, that sat, is be, sat is chit and chit is sat. We, that is what we actually are. And that, that is never unknown. That is the one thing that is always known. Because it, it, is, it is awareness. Awareness can never be unknown. Awareness always knows itself. It cannot be known as an object. But it always knows itself by its own light. That's why it's called Svayam Prakasa, self-shining. That alone is what is real. That alone is what is eternal. There's nothing prior to that. That's why Bhagavan said, Satchit Udiyadu. Satchit does not rise. That Satchit he's talking about is, is the fundamental awareness I am. What rises is ego, the mixed awareness I am Francis. 
Now you're aware of yourself as I am Francis. In dream, you're aware of yourself as I am Francis. In sleep, you're not aware of Francis at all. You're aware only I am. So that I am that is shining alone in sleep is shining even now. It shines eternally. That is the fundamental reality. There is nothing beyond that. That doesn't appear or disappear. It doesn't rise and subside. It's, it's constant. It's eternal. It's unchanging. That but it is, didn't know it's... It always it knows. Know. Do you not Before know yourself? No, it, it's very nature. Oh, can you say awareness doesn't know itself? Of course, awareness always knows itself. It is self -shy. It's not knowing itself as an object, but it is knowing itself just by being itself. Well, it knows itself now because there's a body. But and even, even to say it, it's not it, it's I. I know myself. That is the very nature of I is always to know itself. The body is the body is only when we rise as ego, when we mix ourselves with the body, all the other things manifest. Prior to this prior to the manifestation of ego, all that exists is the fundamental awareness I am. That is our being, that is the reality. But a hundred years ago, I didn't know I am. You're, when you say I there, you're referring to the person Francis, whom you now take to be I remove that Francis and take the pure awareness I. That is what we are to investigate. If you investigate that fundamental awareness I am, you will find it is, as Bhagavan describes in, in verse 28 of, of uh, Upadesh Undia, if one knows what, one's, uh, what the real nature of oneself is, then beginningless anadi Infinite, ananta, undivided, unbroken, akanda, satchidananda. That is our real nature. That is I am. Anything other than I am is something other than yourself. You're not here to know anything other than yourself. Other things appear only when you rise as ego. What you actually are is only I am. And I am is ever knowing itself. Did Ramana say that straight yes, up? Yes, yes. He said in so many ways he said it. He said, jnana mam tane me. One self who is jnana alone is real. And he often referred to our real nature as irakarein. Irakarein means I am. It's our very being. Our being alone is what is real. What is unreal is ego uh, and everything yeah, that appears... Ego and everything that appears in the view of ego, that is all unreal. What alone is real is that fundamental awareness I am. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Thank you, Michael. So we, if we begin to think there's something before that, then we're looking for something other than ourselves. What we are seeking to know is who am I? Because there's nothing beyond I. I alone is what is real. And I am means I exist. So it's where I and its existence are not two different things.
awareness and uh, and the uh, awareness exists so awareness and its existence are not two different things i is the natural name of awareness what is aware is always aware of itself as i And Yaroslav, you've got your hand raised. Just very quickly, Michael, before that, yes. someone okay. just put a very quick question, which you can answer. Yes. Did Michael say that both parts of the path of Sri Ramana are going to be published? Yes, they'll both be published together. Okay, yeah. Sure. <coughs> yeah, there's two hands. No, there's one. No, well, Francis, I, I, have you finished your question, Francis? Uh, yes, Michael, I, I guess... Uh, but the mind, the mind was under the, I, I know it is the mind, but it's something that's unknowable prior to I am. Anything that is unknowable is unreal. You know, the unmanifested, you know, nothingness, if you will, I know that. That is where so many different philosophies and so many, what is called the unmanifest, the actor, that is a, a Sankhya idea. But uh, Prakriti was, the original state of Prakriti was the actor, unmanifest. Only when, Purusha, only when Purusha appears on the scene, when Purusha comes in contact with Prakriti, does it become manifest. But this is a different philosophy. Um, there's some, that is, the, the the useful insight of Sankhya philosophy, it made that fundamental distinction between subject and object, Purusha and Prakriti, the knower and what is known. Everything that is known is Prakriti, the knower is Purusha. That's as far as it goes. But Dvaita goes beyond that. It says what ex everything that is known is exists only in the view of the knower. And even the knower is not real because the knower is ego. But a fundamental awareness, I am, but underlies the knower. That is the that is Brahman. That is the reality. So that which knows other things is ego. The reality of ego, ego is the mixed awareness. I am this body. The reality of ego is only the fundamental awareness. I am. That is what we seek to know. That is what we actually are. But we. We seem to be unaware, but well, we're always aware. We're always aware that we are. We're always aware I am. What we are not aware of is what I am, because now we mistake ourselves to be I am Francis or I am Michael or I am whoever. So the, the problem lies in that, in that false identification. Our being is real. Our existence is real. Our identification, our identity as this or that is unreal. I'm good, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. Yaroslav. Uh, yeah. Namaskaram, Michael. Namaskaram. Everybody. I've got one question now. Uh, in many accounts and stories about uh, Bhagavan, uh, I read that uh, whoever came up to him uh, with uh, whatever question about religious practice, for example, uh, like uh, singing um, japas, mantras, or doing uh, puja, or 
when Muslims uh, came up to him and asked questions or Christians, uh, Bhagavan uh, has never had never ever um, advised people to convert to Hinduism, for example, and whatever practice, uh, religious or spiritual practice uh, they were pursuing, he uh, just advised them to continue uh, to continue doing that. Did he uh, give those uh, such advice uh, because staying where you are, uh, like philosophically or in religious terms, uh, staying where you are is more conducive to self-investigation uh, because if, uh, for example, uh, someone changes, uh, switches traditions like uh, uh, some Orthodox Christian uh, converts uh, to Hinduism and starts doing pujas and uh, worshipping uh, Ganesha or Kali, uh, that person would be more likely to pay and focus their attention on external things and uh, just on images, on some external actions rather than on internal things. Is this uh, the reason why Bhagavan uh, never advised anybody to, to change uh, religion or even uh, some uh, spiritual practice? Um, we could say that is a reason, but that is not the main reason. What is Bhagavan's teachings? Bhagavan's teachings are, who am I? We are questioning what we actually are. The problem, the whole problem is ego. What is ego? It's a false identification. I am Yaroslav. I am Michael. I am, a, I am British. I am Ukrainian. I am Indian. I'm American. I'm uh, African. I'm Chinese. I, I am a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, I'm a Protestant, I'm a Orthodox, I'm Roman Catholic, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Vaishnavite, I'm a Shaivite, I'm, a, um, I'm a, uh, following this philosophy or that philosophy. All of these are false identifications. As Bhagavan said, I am this or I am that is ego. But re reality, the truth, is only I am. So if you change from being an Orthodox Christian to being a Hindu, you're just changing your identity. That isn't helping you to find out what you are. Bhagavan didn't consider any identity to be real. There was a devotee of Bhagavan called um, David Makiba. He actually was, um, uh, though obviously he's of, uh, he's, uh, oh, he's, Ancestry was British, but he was born and brought up in Bombay. And I, I think he lived all his life in India. Um, before he came to Bhagavan, he was originally a follower of the Theosophical Society. Then he became a follower of J. Krishnamurti when J. Krishnamurti was the future Messiah. I think they called it the Order of the Star or something. So he was a follower of that. And um, then he continued being a, a follower of J. Krishnamurti when Krishnamurti broke away from um, the Theosophical Society. Then he came to Bhagavan. Uh, he was with Bhagavan for some time. Then he, um, uh, one time he, um, he became a Sufi. Uh, one time when he, 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 later on, he built a house uh, near Raman Ashram, but he often used to come and go. So once when he had been away for some time, uh, 
one of my friends was actually there at the time. One, one tall and imposing looking man with a henna dyed beard and uh, long robes uh, uh, came into the ashram and uh, bowed down and offered some dates and uh, figs to Bhagavan. And um, Bhagavan looked at him with a smile and then looked around at other people and seeing other people didn't recognize him. He said, do you not know who this is? This is our Makiva. Later, he went to Kashmir for a holiday. He was a sum one summer in Kashmir. And when he came back from Kashmir, he was dressed as an Orthodox Brahmin. Uh, with with uh, with a sacred thread and uh, panchakacha dhoti and everything, and he came and he prostrated to Bhagavan and said, "Bhagavan, I've become a Hindu." Bhagavan simply looked at him and said, "Who has become what?" Because what is the use of changing identifications? What we are here, why we come to Bhagavan is not to become a Hindu or to become a Muslim or to become a Christian or to become anything. Our, our aim is to find out who am I. The truth is, what we actually are is not Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Jain or Sikh or uh, Confucianist or Taoist or anything. It is not... It is not Ukrainian, it is not Russian, it is not European, it is not uh, British or American or South American or African, or it is nothing. What we are is only I am. That is all that Bhagavan is concerned about. So Bhagavan didn't encourage us to change our identity. He encouraged us to give up our identity, give up all identities. But the only real identity is I am I. We are nothing other than I. That is the truth. And we can find that only by turning our attention within. So changing our identity is irrelevant. That is the difference between spirituality and religion. Religion, in religion you have an identity. I am a Christian, I am a Muslim, I am a Hindu. You, and also you have a set of beliefs. If you're a Christian, you have to believe this, this, and this. If you're a Muslim, you have to believe this, this, and this. If you're a Hindu, well, Hindus, you can believe anything and you're still a Hindu. There's so, many, there's so much choice within Hinduism. But uh, generally, religions are about identity and about belief. Bhagavan challenges our very identity, asks us to question not only our identity, but everything that we believe. The most fundamental belief is I am this body. And consequently, we believe this world is true. And all other beliefs are built on these two, two fundamental beliefs. Bhagavan asks us to question all these things. So spirituality is not about identity. It's not about belief. It's about finding out the reality of that which has so many identities and so many beliefs. So the answer you gave, superficially, yes, that, that may be the case, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is Bhagavan didn't want us to merely change our identity. He never encouraged people. He never encouraged people to take sannyasa. But he also didn't encourage. He said, if it's your destiny 
to be a sannyasi, you'll be a sannyasi. If it's your destiny to be a grahasta, you'll be a grahasta. Grahasta means a, a family person. If you're destined to be married and to have X number of children, you'll be married next to have next number of children. All these outward things, they're all according to destiny. So whether you're a sannyasi or you're, you're a householder, whether you're a, a, a monk or a priest or a, or a businessman or whatever it is, these are all false identities. What is real is only I am. That is what we need to investigate. That is what we need to know. And so from, from this point of view, uh, the very question or the very statement, uh, for example, I am practitioner of this or I am practitioner of that, you have this adjunct, I am yes. uh, practitioner of this, yes. and the question... Yes. Uh, turns out to be wrong or yes. you know, like redundant. Yes. Even to think I am a devotee of Bhagavan, I am a follower of Bhagavan is false. Who am I? That is, if you're clinging to investigating what this I is, then only you're truly following Bhagavan. Then there won't be an eye rising to say, I am a follower of Bhagavan, I am a devotee of Bhagavan. So even this identification we have to give up. Uh, thank you very much <laughs> right. for the answer. <laughs> right. uh, Michael, there is one comment which I think is a question. Um, yes. We cling to only those things that seem to give us happiness, but why do I cling to my past mistakes? Because such clinging makes me miserable. <sighs> the mind is going outwards in search of happiness. When, um, but we, it is very complicated. That is, once we rise as ego, ego is complicated. As ego, we identify ourselves. We identify ourselves as this person. We identify ourselves also with our past. So if we've done mistakes in the past, we are identifying ourselves with those uh, mistakes and we are regretting. That is, when you're thinking about the past, your, your past mistakes, you're regretting. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. If I hadn't done that, then I would be in a better position now. So it's indirectly your mind is seeking happiness. You're seeking happiness in, well, how would it have been if I hadn't made that mistake? Then I would, be a, I would have been a better person. I would, have, I would be happier. Whatever the mind may be going towards, that is, when the mind goes out towards the world, it experiences misery, Bhagavan says. When the mind goes towards, in, in the end of the uh, 14th paragraph of um, Nana, what Bhagavan says is, Jagam Embadu Nineve, what is called the world is only thought. Jagam Marayam Podu, Adavadu Ninevatrapodu Manam Anandate Anubhavikindradu. That when when the world exists, that is when thoughts cease, the mind experiences happiness. Jagam Tondram Podu Adu Dukate Anubhavikindradu. When the world appears, it experiences misery. So the very appearance of the world is misery. So, but why our mind keeps on coming out of going out towards the world, out of all this misery that we experience in the world, we're trying, still trying to squeeze some iotas of happiness. Because 
we are ignorant of our true nature. We, we are not aware, but we ourselves are happiness. So we assume that the happiness that we are seeking lies not in ourselves, but in other things. So we look for happiness outside. But the more we, the mind goes outward, the more it experiences misery. So why is your mind dwelling on your past mistakes? Because it, you're thinking, oh, if I hadn't done that, then I would be happier. It, it, this, it, this shows how foolish the mind is. The mind is foolish by its very nature because it's seeking happiness where happiness doesn't lie. Happiness does not lie in external things. Happiness lies only within. So but, uh, Bhagavan says in that same paragraph, um, uh, When the mind comes out, manam velil varam podu dukate anubhavikindradu. When the mind comes out, it experiences misery. Uh, in truth, uh, when our thoughts are fulfilled, that means when our desires are fulfilled, but it um, it returns to its 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 uh, actual. Uh, it's it's real. It's actual place. It's its own abode. It returns to itself, in other words, and experiences happiness. Um, in the in the same way, in sleep, samadhi, and swoon, in times of sleep, samadhi, and swoon, and when things desired are attained, and when things disliked are removed, it experiences the mind. The mind becomes introverted and experiences happiness. Um, uh, Ipadi, uh, Atma, leaving it in this way, leaving itself and going outwards and then coming back within, uh, ceaselessly the mind is, is wavering about, wandering about. Um, okay, sorry, I, I think I've, the bit I was looking for, I think it was actually coming earlier. Ah, yes, sorry, sorry. What, what he says, I'll begin from the beginning. He says, Sukham embadu apma vin sarupame. What is called happiness is the very nature of ourself. Sukhamum apma sarupamum verandru. Happiness and, our, and the real nature of ourself are not different. Apma sukham, that is the happiness that is ourself, alone exists. That alone is real. Prapanja uh, porul. Uh, in not even a single thing, object of the world, is there any happiness? Or no happiness is happiness is not to be attained in any of the things of the world. We think that happiness is to be obtained by them only because of our abhivaka, our lack of discrimination. So that is the foolishness. What greater folly is there to look for happiness where happiness doesn't exist and to ignore the place where happiness does exist? Happiness exists only within us. It's our own real nature. But we are constantly looking for it outside. This is the greatest folly. And we will even dwell on those thoughts cause us misery, like the mistakes we've made in the past. Why are we thinking that? Because we, we were wishing, oh, I wish I hadn't made that mistake. Things would have, My life would have been so much better if I hadn't made that mistake. 
So indirectly, the mind is looking, is seeking happiness outside and thinking of seeking happiness in the thought of what would have been if I hadn't made that mistake. But by seeking happiness outside, we are just courting misery. I hope that adequately answers that question. Yes, sir, it does. It does. It does answer. Thank you. Okay, right. So we have um, the final question at the moment. Mm. Does it mean that we are self-aware even in mano layer? Yes. Awareness is your very nature. The very first question Shiv Kashmplai asked Bhagavan is, who am I? And Bhagavan's answer was, Arivainan, awareness alone is I. So how can awareness ever not be aware? We are always aware. And being aware means being aware of ourselves, because we can't be aware without being aware that we are aware. And being aware that we are aware implies being aware that we are. So that awareness I am is the fundamental awareness. We cannot be aware of anything else without being aware I am. But one thing that is constant, whether we're aware of other things or not, we are always aware I am. We're not aware of I am, because I am is not an object of awareness. We are just aware I am. That is the fundamental awareness. So that shines in all states, in, in both when the mind appears in waking and dream and when it disappears in sleep or any other state of manolaya. The awareness is always there. The problem with manolaya is we go into manolaya by some means other than self-investigation. So in manolaya, the mind subsides. When the mind has subsided, what remains is the pure awareness I am. But in order for the mind to be destroyed, in order for ego to be destroyed, ego needs to experience itself as that pure awareness I am. So since in manolaya, in take sleep, sleep is a typical state of manolaya. In sleep, what happens in sleep? We are too tired to continue thinking. So we withdraw our attention from all other things. We subside in manolaya. Only after we, the mind has subsided in manolaya does pure awareness alone remain. Pure awareness was already there, but it remains alone only when the mind has subsided. But because the mind is absent, it, the mind is not destroyed thereby. If, if a court passes, um, supposing there's a, a court, um, uh, but passes judgment on a criminal, and the criminal is not present, the court may say, for the crimes this criminal has com committed, we sentence him or her to, to execution, to death. But you can't carry out that death sentence unless the criminal is present. Likewise, we can't kill ego except in its presence. So ego will be destroyed only when ego sees itself as pure awareness. Ego is the false awareness, I am this body. When ego sees itself as pure awareness, in other words, when it sees itself as I am alone, it thereby ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. So ego is destroyed only by seeing itself as it actually is. It can see itself as it actually is only in waking and dream, because in Manolaya it's absent. That's why Manolaya is very pleasant to be in Manolaya. We all need to be in Manolaya for some time every day, or we become too tired. We can't continue functioning without subsiding in Manolaya in sleep for at least a few hours a day. But 
we don't make any spiritual progress by being in Manalaya. That's why Bhagavan never encouraged anyone to seek Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi. And why he taught that he gave he told that story about the yogi who was adept at going into Nivikalpa Samadhi and remained in Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years at one time. And when he woke up, the first thought that had popped up in his mind was the last thought that was there before he went into Samadhi. He, before going into Samadhi, he was feeling thirsty, so he asked his disciple to fetch water from the Ganga. But before the disciple could come back with the water, he again became immersed in Samadhi. And that time he was immersed in Samadhi so deeply that he remained in that state for 300 years. So the disciple obviously had passed away. But as Bhagavan, Bhagavan told it very graphically, he said, in the meanwhile, even the Ganga had changed course. So the Ganga, which was nearby, was now a few miles away. And the village which had been there, that had also moved. So, But when he woke up after 300 years in Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi, the first thing he asked for angrily is, where's my water? So Bhagavan said, even the most superficial thought, the last thought in his mind before he went into Samadhi, was the first thought that popped up. So that means even the most superficial thought is not eradicated by remaining 300 years in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. What about all the Vasanas? They will remain intact. Just like we cannot destroy Vasanas, no matter how long you may sleep for, no matter how long you may remain in Manolaya, it's a, it's, it, you're not making any progress because you're not eradicating the vasanas. We can eradicate the vasanas only in waking and dream. When we rise as ego and are being pulled this way and that way by our vasanas, we can weaken the vasanas by not being swayed by them. We cannot weaken them when they're not functioning. In sleep, they're not functioning. So we, we, or in Nivikalpa Samadhi, they're not functioning. So <clears throat> Manolaya is very pleasant state, but it's of no spiritual benefit. What we are seeking is not manolaya, but manonasa. Manonasa can be achieved only by seeing ourselves as we actually are, seeing what we actually are. What we actually are is pure awareness. Pure awareness means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. So it's only by turning our attention back towards ourselves and thereby away from everything else, but we can be aware of ourselves as the pure awareness that we actually are. As soon as we as ego see ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. That is the end. That is the That is being swallowed by grace. That is what is called self-realization or enlightenment or um, moksha or nirvikalpa or, or um or Sarja Nirvikalpa Samadhi, or um, Nirvana, whatever you call it, that is alone your real state. That is Churiya, the fourth, which is actually the only real state. But to achieve that, we need to see ourselves as we actually are. We can see ourselves as we actually are only by looking within. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Looking within to see who am I. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, thank you. Seems a good place to end. No, we've got one more hand raised. Oh, yeah? I didn't see. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, Champa. Is it Champa? Yeah, it is. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Michael, just a quick one. Um, to differentiate between um, Nirvikalp, Keval Nirvikalp Samadhi, where there is Laya, yes. and the Sahaj Samadhi, mm. tell me, in Nirvikalp, 
केवल निर्विकल्प समाधि इज दैट अवेयरनेस ऑफ आई एम it is a state of manolaya in manolaya we are not aware of anything other than i am but the problem the difference between manolaya and manonasa manolaya we come out of it again manonasa we never come out of it again why do we come out of uh, uh, manolaya because we go into it without knowing what we actually are so to bring about a uh, manonasa which is what is called uh, uh, sahaja nirvikalpa samadhi we need to know what we actually are we can know what we actually are only by turning our attention within if you merely withdraw your attention from all other things you subside in manolaya that's what happens every night when we fall asleep we're too tired to continue thinking so we withdraw our attention from all other things we subside in laya withdrawing our attention from other things is not sufficient what is necessary is to focus our attention on ourselves to focus our attention so keenly on ourselves but it is thereby withdrawn from everything else then only will we experience ourselves as we actually are and that is uh manonasa that is uh the achievement of our natural state of sahaj what Bhagwan generally referred to it just as our natural state, but because people use the word samadhi, he said that is the sahaja samadhi. That is the natural samadhi. Yes, Michael. <clears throat> the difference between sleep and um, uh, the cable uh, nervical samadhi, which is which mm. ends up in layer. Yeah. Yes. In sleep, we are not at all aware of ourselves. Uh, we do not experience. i am we are unaware of i am even though i am exists we are not aware of it who is not aware of it i but it's like a blank state even though it, we exist uh, this requ- this requires clarification to the mind in waking and dream sleep seems to be a blank state why because the mind was absent in sleep but you were present as i am we there is never a moment when we are not aware of ourselves as i am yeah that is uh, the awareness i am is our real nature so bhagwan said sleep is not a state of of ignorance it's not a state of darkness it's a state of pure awareness it's only f- but but the reason why it now seems to be a state of darkness now we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are because we are aware of ourselves as i am champa or i am michael or i am whoever because of this false identification we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are because we are now not aware of ourselves as we actually are we cannot recall what we were aware of in sleep because what we were aware of in sleep is what we actually are if we could re- recall clearly recall what we experienced in sleep we would be that i mean that would be what we actually are now ego would be destroyed so when we are practicing self investigation we are trying to experience here and now in this waking state the pure awareness that we experienced in sleep but there is but sometimes people ask what is the difference between nirvikalpa samadhi and sleep yeah bhagavan sometimes said according to the yogis in nirvikalpa samadhi there is awareness 
whereas in sleep there is not, no awareness. But Bhagavan clarified that is because they go into Nivikalpa Samadhi deliberately by, by means of uh, their practices, so they're able to recognize the awareness that exists in sleep. So in, in Nibhikalpa Samadhi, they cannot recognize the awareness that exists in sleep, yeah. but exactly the same awareness is there in sleep, but is there in Nibhikalpa Samadhi. All differences appear only in the view of the mind. Since the mind is absent in uh, layer, there cannot be any difference between one state of layer and another state of layer. The differences appear, the difference between Nivikalpa Samadhi and sleep appears to the mind in waking and dream. So from the perspective of the yogi, the yogi feels, I was aware in Nivikalpa Samadhi, I was not aware in sleep. That shows their ignorance. Because if they, if they actually knew what they were, they would recognize that that same awareness that they were, but they recollect away experiencing in in Nivikalpa Samadhi, they were experiencing exactly the same in sleep. So this <clears throat> this path of yoga, the furthest it can go is to lead to Nivikalpa to lead to Nivikalpa Samadhi, which is a state of Manalaya. That's why Bhagavan said in verse. In verse 13 of Upadeshundia, Bhagavan says, dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. That which is dissolved in layer will rise again. That which is uh, which is dissolved in nasa, that when its form dies, it will not rise again. Then in verse 14, he says, the mind that is subdued or curbed by breath restraint, only if that mind is sent on the or bari, the path of investigation, will its form die? So what Bhagavan, what Bhagavan is implying there is for the yogis, before they allow the mind to subside in manolaya, that is, by their pranayama and other practices, they can calm down the mind. But they shouldn't let it go so far that it goes into manolaya, because that's uh, they can't make any progress then. Before subsiding in layer, they need to turn their attention back within to find out who am I. Only by investigating who am I will the mind die. That's, that's what Bhagavad says. Ullate ovari vidakave undipara viyam adonuru undipara Only if it's is sent on that path of investigation will its form die. So the, the yoga can take you only so far. If you want to go from yoga to, uh, to manonasa, you need to turn the mind back within. There is no shortcut. There's no way around it. We have to turn our mind within. We have to see ourselves as we actually are. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 44 of Akshramlai, what was what did Bhagavan learn from Arunachala? Arunachala teaches in silence, but what Bhagavan, what Arunachala taught Bhagavan in silence, he expressed to us in words. In verse 44 of Akshramlai, he says, Tirumbiaham, uh, I mean turning within, Tane Dinam Ahakankan, daily see yourself with the inner eye. That means the eye of attention, the inner eye of attention. Terium, it will be known. Thus you told me my Arunachala, or thus you told me, what a wonder. 
Yes. So that is the only way. There is no other way. Um, my difficulty is how to destroy the mind, one, and how to recognize that we are not slipping into liar. Um, if, 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 your, if your mind dissolves in a state like sleep and comes out again, that is Manolaya. Okay. But you can subside in Manolaya only if you lose your hold on self-attentiveness. By holding on to self-attentiveness, we are remaining balanced between, that is, if we allow our attention to be diverted by vasanas, we get carried away by thoughts. If we allow our attention to be uh, to be, if we lose our attention and slip into sleep, that is, there are two two ways we can lose hold our uh, hold on self attentiveness. If you hold on to self attentiveness, you are then remaining balanced between thoughts on one hand and sleep on the other. You're neither slipping into thoughts nor you are you slipping into sleep. That is the unique efficacy of this path. That is why this is actually the true samadhi, because one meaning of the word samadhi is samadhi. It's a balanced state of mind. So that state where we are remaining balanced in the state of self-attentiveness, not allowing ourselves to be carried away by vasanas into thoughts, or not allowing ourselves to be carried away by drowsiness, by pramada into sleep, we hold on to just that self-attentiveness, that is what Bhagavan calls the practice of Sahaja Samadhi. That practice of Sahaja Samadhi alone will lead to the ultimate Sahaja Samadhi, which is that is Sahaja Samadhi becomes permanent when the mind is destroyed. It is destroyed only by this practice of holding on to self-attentiveness. So we are aware. Sorry, sorry, you say. Yeah, we are. Uh, aware of I amness in um, a liar state, yeah. Yes, we, you, you, you are never, you, you never cease to be aware of your own existence. I am is your fundamental awareness. That is what you actually are. So that can never be absent. But in order, in order to, um, to bring about the destruction of the mind, all you need to do is to hold on to that fundamental awareness I am. So long as you're holding on to that fundamental awareness I am, you can forget about thoughts, forget about uh, layer. You need not worry about thoughts or layer. All you need to be concerned about is holding on to I am. If you begin to think about thoughts, your attention has gone away from yourself. If you begin to think, how can I avoid layer? Your attention has gone away from yourself. Just hold on to I am. That will lead you beyond layer to NASA. You answered it very well. Hold on to this mind. is not this is not my answer. This is Bhagavan's answer. Yeah. Bhagavan says, Vida pidi Surupa Dhyanate, Vida Pidi I Pidi Kavendam. That means tenaciously, unfailingly hold on to Swarupa Dhyana. That is meditation on your own real nature. That means self-attentiveness. Hold you on to that awareness I am. That is the only way. Yeah. That is Bhagavan's path. It's actually so simple. 
But the problem is we have so much liking to go outwards. So we, it requires persistent practice. But the practice itself is very easy. It seems difficult because our mind keeps on jumping outwards. But all we need to do, doesn't matter how many times our mind jumps outwards, we bring it back in. We bring it back again. We bring it back again. We bring it back again. That is the practice. And the more we bring it back, the, the weaker those outward going vasanas, the share vasanas will become. And the greater the love to be as we actually are will grow. That is the sat vasana. So there cannot be a simpler path than the path Bhagavan has shown us. Yep. Thank you, Michael. Uh, your one. All, all thanks to Bhagavan. I, I'm innocent. <laughs> yeah. I'm innocent. I'm just. I'm just. The, I'm a postman who brings you a post in the morning. <laughs> you, you don't say thank you to the postman because you get a good news in the letter. It's uh, that is, this is all Bhagavan's teaching. I'm just saying what Bhagavan has taught us. Yeah. So what I understand is keep holding on to I am. That's all. Yes. From yeah. beginning to end, that is Bhagavan's path. Yeah. Okay. What is this I? Who am I? That is what we need to hold on to that. that uh, it doesn't mean asking the question, who am I, or asking the question, what am I? It means holding on to I to find well, out what, what we actually are. Yeah. Bhagavan said, investigate who am I. Uh, find out who am I. See who am I. So we need to see what we actually are. We can do that only by holding on to I am. In, in one verse in Guru Vachakukavai, he said, cling to that like an Udumbu. An Udumbu yeah. is, is a type of lizard, but can hold, it, it's got suction pads. When it climbs up a wall, it holds so fast to the wall, you can hold on to that lizard and you can lift yourself up. It's holding so fast. So we need to hold so fast to that, that fundamental awareness I am. That's all. Yes. That is the simple path that Bhagavan has given us. Simple and infallible, unfailing. We, this cannot fail. That's why, he, that's why he said to Akilanda Maya, who was a simple, uneducated village woman, when she asked him for some teaching, or she didn't even ask him, when he, she, she was thinking of asking him and was feeling shy, he, turned, he said to her, Unne vidamal iru. That means be without leaving or without letting go of yourself. That is Bhagavan's path. Got it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I know you said no thank you to you, but still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, okay. I may pass it through me to Bhagavan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, right. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya. Wait, does it, wait, hang on, there's a new message, actually. Let me just check. Oh. No, it's thank yous. Okay, yes, yes. A string yes. of thank yous. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, they, that's all Bhagavan's department, <laughs> not my department. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>